program of St. Louis. Washington University. Washington University. Washington University. Political Review. Political Review. Hi, everyone. My name is Alexis Hyde, and you are listening to the Purple Podcast brought to you by WashU Political Review. I'm Lawrence, and I was a C-section baby. I'm Erin, and I am barely holding it together for midterms. I would also like to add that I'm an Aquarius. So today we are covering the floods that clog our drains and our communities with this month's whooper theme, water. We'll cover the flooding that happened the summer of 2022, the effect that it's had on the St. Louis community, the racist and systematic elephant in the room, and the greater national picture. Have you ever noticed that you can't take the Metro to St. Charles? How is our community's response to this tragedy symbolic of the overall infrastructure? And more importantly, how is our experience as WashU students vastly different from that of other citizens? For those of you who live under a rock or are devoid of all empathy for the greater St. Louis community, St. Louis experienced historical flooding this past summer, surpassing a 107-year-old record made in 1915 after a hurricane. The news first broke as a frantic series of flash flood alerts from the National Weather Service, warning residents to move immediately to higher ground. There wasn't much anticipation beforehand. The rain came, and it stayed for a while, and soon the floods simply followed. During the first full day of flooding, the St. Louis Fire Department said that in a single four-hour period, they were called to respond to 75 flood-related emergencies, quickly stretching reactive community resources thin. Students who were staying on campus for the summer circulated shocking images on social media. In neighborhoods surrounding the WashU campus, cars were being swept down the street as entire floors flooded in apartment buildings. Metro stops were under more than 20 feet of water, and traffic was delayed for hours on busy roads like Forest Park Parkway. These images depicted damage eerily similar to that of Hurricane Ian in the southern United States, although Ian was to make landfall weeks later. Water damage continues to pose a problem in several WashU dorms and buildings, as many students must walk across campus to use a different laundry facility due to the basement flooding. Luckily, WashU created the Flood Crisis Fund to assist students who were impacted by the flooding, covering payments of up to $1,000 for reimbursement of property damage and other essentials. While the flood water itself seemed to recede soon enough, the water damage is still felt by the greater St. Louis community, noticeably within public transportation. The Metrolink is reported to be running twice as slow as it has been in the past, with some stops out of commission altogether. As if that isn't enough of an inconvenience, many of the elevators leading to Metro stops are still periodically out of service, making the Metro completely inaccessible to folks who need it most. Research from Flourish St. Louis shows that more than 80% of riders on public transportation are black and black families are five times less likely to have a car. The lack of public transportation accessibility and maintenance is just one symptom of segregation in St. Louis. And why is St. Louis so segregated? To really dive deep into the racial divide, we need to talk a little bit about the history. According to STL Mag, the founders of St. Louis came from New Orleans with the goal of extending the reach of the South through the Mississippi River. In fact, St. Louis is one of the only cities in the Northern United States to have a century long history of slaveholding. 
At the time slavery was outlawed, black people of St. Louis made up roughly 6% of the population. At the beginning of the 20th century, however, St. Louis had the second highest population of black Americans in the United States. This terrified the white St. Louis elite, who worried that their presence would lower the value of their homes. In 1916, a reform ordinance was instated, preventing anyone from buying a home in a neighborhood that was more than 75% occupied by people of another race. In 1917, the Supreme Court ruled that this ruling was illegal, so white citizens of St. Louis turned to what's known as racial covenants, meaning they went door-to-door -door asking families to sign a contract promising to never sell their homes to an African-American citizen. This practice lasted more than 30 years and is responsible in part for the red line municipalities we see today. According to writer and educator John Wright, in the 1960s and 70s, University City had formed its own residential housing service, deliberately buying homes on both sides of Del Mar Boulevard and only selling homes on the north side to white people, while selling homes to only black people on the south side. The unofficial housing service was essentially unstoppable, as they controlled so much of the property in the area. Wright says, quote, the community would not yield to realtors or bankers. This trend continued for decades and resulted in what is now known as the Delmar Divide. The Delmar Divide refers to the racial and socioeconomic disparity across the North and South Sides, the South Side being 98% black residents with 10% of residents having bachelor's degrees, and the North Side being 73% white residents with 70% of residents having bachelor's degrees. Associate Professor of History at UMSL, Priscilla Dowden-White, recalled in an interview with St. Louis Magazine her own experience in 1995. Her and her husband had attended an open house near Tower Grove Park and met an older white real estate agent. Without prompting, he called weeks later to tell them he had found the perfect place for them in Belnor. When Dowden-White said she wasn't interested, he became angry, saying he thought they wanted to buy in North County. Anecdotes such as these don't stop in the 90s and the discrimination that prevented black citizens from buying homes in white neighborhoods in the 1900s is still very much alive today. Writer, activist, and rapper Tef Poe writes in an article for the Riverfront Times that this is the reason you can walk down Union Boulevard past a gated community with 24-7 police protection and less than a block away, you will walk into a dilapidated neighborhood that takes police almost 45 minutes to respond to. And coming back to our point, Tef Poe says this is also why you can't take the Metrolink to St. Charles, a city about 20 minutes away from St. Louis, with a household income 61% higher than that of St. Louis. However, the Metrolink will conveniently take you to the West County Center so that, quote, inner city teenagers can go to the mall. Back to the present-day damage. The effects of the flooding continue to be devastating to the greater St. Louis community, especially in low-income and historically redlined areas around the city. Even at the time of this episode's recording, hundreds of families are still waiting for adequate resources to fix parts of their home and, in some cases, rebuild it completely. Unfortunately, this isn't the first time the community has been ravaged by flooding. STL-NPR talked with Yvette Lyles, a resident in a neighborhood just south of East St. Louis, where she told them that her home regularly floods, even outside of larger flash floods that happen in the area. 
She said that this sort of thing almost always happens when there is heavy rain in predominantly black and low-income communities. She says she's tired, just like everyone else living in the same conditions, prone to weather damage, gate-kept from essential aid, and perpetually dealing with outdated and inadequate infrastructure. As we've mentioned before, Yvette's situation, like that of hundreds of other families in the floodplain, is far from a coincidence. This is a well-known historic case of environmental racism. Not only are historically black neighborhoods conveniently placed in flood zones, these neighborhoods are also surrounded by dumping grounds and chemical manufacturing plants. Each time these areas flood, the floodwaters wash chemical pollution throughout the area, contaminating the water supply and exposing families to carcinogens. In 2021, the McKelvey engineers and the Community Corps students cited a map of self-reported cancer patients and their proximity to dumping grounds and factories in the Coldwater Creek floodplain, located in northern St. Louis. Unsurprisingly, cancer cases are more prevalent near the floodplain and sources of pollution, such as fluorescence, and significantly less prevalent in areas such as Maryland Heights. In a current project led by the nonprofit Just Moms STL, McKelvey students will measure radioactivity levels at the Westlake landfill to pressure the EPA to remove the waste, rather than continue the current and inefficient practice of throwing more dirt on top of the waste and waiting for the rain to wash it away. And while the completion of this project will undoubtedly make a huge impact on the radioactive chemical pollution of the surrounding environment, it is far from a complete fix. According to the WashU School of Law's Interdisciplinary Environmental Clinic, or the IEC, the majority of the city's illegal trash dumping happens in majority black neighborhoods. And most sources of pollution, such as manufacturing plants, abandoned factories, and building demolitions, are located in neighborhoods of color. Blake Strode, executive director of Arch City Defenders, says, quote, The environmental racism that exists in St. Louis is the result of decades of intentional policy choices aimed at creating and compounding the disparities that we see along lines of race and class. It will require a different set of policies to reverse these outcomes. The same report from the IEC also says that the pollution has been proven to take its toll on the health of the families living in these neighborhoods. Black children in St. Louis make up 70% of children suffering from lead poisoning and are 10 times more likely to visit the emergency room for asthma than their white counterparts. Unfortunately, the flood also presented more urgent danger by claiming the lives of two St. Louisans, including 60-year-old Kumsa Hui. Hui had worked for 12 years at Lambert International Airport and was known as a hard worker and friendly face to all who encountered him. One of his co-workers remembers him fondly, saying in an interview to STL Today that, quote, everybody loved him. He always smiled and greeted people. He was a good guy, probably one of the last good guys out there. Mere months before the floods, his apartment complex in the West End caught fire, displacing 24 families and injuring one resident. Hoy was lucky enough to not have been displaced, but his later death in the West End points to a continued failure of infrastructure in primarily non-white communities. The flood certainly played a role in killing Hoy, but so did the long-term negligence that stopped neighborhoods like the West End from having adequate drainage, especially considering its proximity to the central West End, a significantly more affluent neighborhood than the West End with a more robust drainage system. The rich drains have to run somewhere, and that somewhere is often the impoverished streets. (laughs) 
like what you're hearing and want to get involved with Whooper, email editor at whooper.org or follow us on Instagram at WashU Political Review for more information on how to contribute to the magazine. The flooding we experienced over the summer may have been shocking for many, especially WashU students. However, it is nothing compared to the racial discrimination and environmental risk minority citizens of St. Louis face every day, and in fact have faced for several decades. Outside of the St. Louis community, cities across the nation are struggling to cope with the drastic weather occurrences. Oscar Wilde long said that life imitates art. And if the U.S. is life, then St. Louis is quite a representative tapestry of overwhelming design. First, our return to the summer's flooding. Soon after Missouri Governor Mike Parson declared a state of emergency, Kentucky did the same thing during a flooding event, which the National Weather Service described as having a 1.1% chance of happening in any given year during the climate history of North America. In the following weeks, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, California, and Illinois experienced varying levels of flooding, the worst of it hitting Kentucky, but the majority of storms still historic for each state. In the most heavily damaged areas, residents compared the weather they experienced to hurricanes they had either lived through or seen the aftermath of. Thomas Frank writes in The Scientific American that in the U.S., flooding damage disproportionately harms African-American neighborhoods. That's according to a political analysis of federal flood insurance payments, showing and citing Hurricane Harvey and Katrina as straightforward examples of that trend. This is an important pattern to point out, since it contradicts the usual public perception of the negative effects of severe weather. News reports showing live footage of hurricanes often stage cameras to capture a menacing storm, moving over a priceless villa, over a fleet of yachts rocking along the shore. Despite the subconscious suggestion that white coastal elites are suffering the most during extreme weather events, the reality is much bleaker. The poorest residents across the country are more likely to live on the lowest lying land, which are also the most susceptible to mass flooding events. However, government projects to improve infrastructure often stop short of updating the drainage and emergency preparedness structures in poor zip codes and communities of color in general. This negligence leads to real, long-lasting damage among minority populations. In fact, four of the seven hardest-hit zip codes during Hurricane Katrina were at least 75% black. A 2019 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine concluded with this quote, While several storms fall on the rich and poor alike, the capacity to respond and to recover from flooding is much lower in socially vulnerable populations that, even in the best of times, are struggling to function. After taking a look at the bigger picture outside of the WashU bubble, we can see now that comparatively, we fared the floodwaters pretty well. Other states are still struggling to recover from the recent uptick in devastating storms, and some families have lost their loved ones as a result. As WashU students, we have to recognize the privilege it is to be associated with a university that was built strategically in a wealthy, white neighborhood, just blocks away from the other side of the Del Mar Divide, where residents were unable to access emergency resources or even the original structural integrity that we get to enjoy. It is clear now that within our bubble of privilege that works to perpetuate itself, we did not experience the same storm as the greater St. Louis community, or even as the rest of the United States.
Anyway, thank you guys for listening to this episode, The Flugs That Clog Our Drains and Communities, brought to you by the Purple Podcast under the WashU Political Review. Again, my name is Aaron. My name is Alexis. And my name is Lawrence. Please like or share and stay tuned for future episodes. Have an idea for an episode? Please reach out to me at e.h.rittere at wustle.edu to be featured on the podcast.